not used to saying that. Let's pray. Our dear Savior, our majestic Lord, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist proclaimed, the Lamb who also comes to bring judgment on the world as Revelation proclaims, the glorious, holy Lamb of God, majestic in all of your perfections, the love of our hearts, and we confess to you that we don't love you as we ought to. We don't love you to the degree that you are worthy of our love. And so we are continually needing you and asking you to draw us upward into your presence and into your throne room. And you, knowing that we need this constant reminder, have designed the Lord's table, as we call it, to be a reminder of physical representation, a symbol that holds out before our eyes the realities of the cross, the present realities of your spirit among us and our union with you, and the future realities of our being in your kingdom and your ultimate purposes for this world and for us. And so we ask you to accomplish those things, increase our faith this morning as we celebrate the table. And all of that is informed by your word, and so we ask you first to teach us from your word as we open it up and continue to look, our Lord, during your time of stay here on earth about your entrance into Jerusalem. Will you teach us from this episode? Will you inform us of all of those things you have designed for us to learn from this event. We commit ourselves again to you. We humble ourselves before you, asking for grace. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We'll be looking this morning at verses 17 through 21. As we continue our look at this final week in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ during His time of stay here on earth, this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, we are confronted with His entrance into not Jerusalem so much, but into the temple of God. And as He is marching along in this week, He is getting closer and closer to that final climactic event of His life on earth. The cross, his crucifixion. Now, there are certain themes that run throughout the entirety of Scripture. And obviously, one of those central themes, if not one of these central themes, is God's redemption of man, God's eternal plan to redeem man from their sin. Though man's sin brought about death and destruction into God's perfect creation, God, before the foundation of the world, had determined to redeem fallen man and to bring some of the number of his rebellious creatures back into fellowship with him at the cost of the suffering of his own dear son for our rebellion. The promise and the coming of the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is then a theme 
throughout Scripture. He is the central reality of Scripture and God's work in him. And through faith and repentance, man is united to him by the Spirit of God and brought into eternal fellowship with the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And one day will dwell with him in perfect peace and joy and righteousness on a new heavens and a new earth where holiness alone is present. And the glory of God illumines all of eternity. And we are, who know him, basking forever in his love for us and our love for him. Another major theme that runs throughout Scripture, however, is the destruction of the wicked. And alongside that is a constant theme about those who consider themselves to be part of God's redemption, but in fact are not. In other words, those who have a false hope in His salvation. Now this warning is most infamously uttered by the Lord Jesus Himself. Words that we are very familiar with. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in other words, there is a religious commitment, a religious experience that produces only false hope in men. And it falls short of worshiping him in spirit and in truth. For those who fall into this category, it is not a deficiency in doing religious works. It is a deficiency or absence of having experienced true repentance and love for Him. Now this unfortunately characterized much of the history of the nation of Israel. And in large measure has characterized much of the visible church throughout her history. Fallen man is forever wanting to hold a form of religion while denying its power, its saving and its sanctifying and its purifying power in Christ, according to Paul in 2 Timothy. And it is that false religious structure that Jesus is confronting this morning. And in fact, as he is continually confronting throughout his three-year ministry in the land of Israel during his time of stay here on earth, And what we see this morning is an unfolding of the collision of two worlds. The kingdom of God, as it really is, and the empty apostate religion of Judaism, both then and sadly even now. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he will immediately confront the unrighteous use of God's temple. And in that, expose the blindness of Israel's leaders. And he'll demonstrate that God rejects all worship that does not glorify him in Christ and in spirit and in truth. Read with me, if you will, verses 12 through 17 of Matthew 21. And then we'll look at it more closely as we prepare our heart for his table. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, 
and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. Go back up to verse 12. And let's note first God's rejection of perverted worship. Jesus now, Matthew tells us, entered into the temple. Now let's stop there for just a moment. This is Herod's temple, and it's called that because it was one of the monumental building projects of Herod the Great. Herod's temple, however, was in fact the third temple in the history of the Jews. You'll remember the first temple was Solomon's temple, constructed in the book of 1 Kings. It was a glorious testimony to the presence of God among his people. That temple, as we have noted, was destroyed around 587 or 586 B.C. under the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. God brought his judgment against that temple then because of the iniquity and the wickedness and the idolatry and the spiritual corruption of his people. At the end of 70 years of captivity for the southern tribes of Judah... There was, at their return to the land, a second temple constructed. And that was constructed under the leadership of Zerubbabel. So Ezra was raised up by God to restore the worship and the law among the people of God again. Zerubbabel was responsible for the building of the temple. And Nehemiah, as we remember, was responsible for the construction of the walls. Yet this temple or this temple was completed around 515 BC and though this temple paled in comparison to Solomon's which Ezra 3 reminds us caused some who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple to weep at its diminutive size while others who had not seen Solomon's temple in fact were rejoicing that they even had a temple at all nonetheless this temple known as the second temple of course was the center of Israel's worship all the way up nearly to the time of Christ. So it stood for nearly 500 years, and although its condition deteriorated through both conflict and neglect, it was nonetheless still a visible representation of God's presence among His people. What Jesus is entering here, however, is a third temple, as we already mentioned, Herod's temple, whose construction was initiated by Herod the Great around 20 B.C., and it was really by, for Herod, a means of solidifying his relationship with the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, he himself being considered a half-Jew. Now, Herod's temple was by design matched only by his own large, grandiose ambitions for personal glory. Therefore, it was even larger than Solomon's temple. The foundation was nearly doubled, and other features such as the walls were lengthened to such an extent that he had to fill in part of the valleys around the temple just to make room for him. The temple was amazing in its structure. And this is represented by the disciples' own comments in Matthew 24.1. As they're leaving the temple, they comment to Jesus. Uh, they say, as they were going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They were themselves reflecting on the glory and the magnificence of this structure known as Herod's temple. 
Now, one brief note regarding the temple here and the glory of God in the presence of Jesus. In Ezekiel chapter 10, God gives in Ezekiel, Ezekiel this amazing vision in which the Shekinah glory of God is seen departing from the temple. And so that would be Solomon's temple. And it is just before the destruction that God is about to bring on it. The Shekinah glory, as you will remember, is the visible representation of the presence and the glory of God among His people. It is that glory of God that filled the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 that made it that, so that even Moses could not enter in. It is the glory of God that filled Solomon's temple at its completion in 1 Kings chapter 6, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 9. However, when it departed just before the destruction of the temple, that vision, that vision that Ezekiel saw, the glory of God never again returned to the temple. When they built the second temple, the glory of God did not return. When they built Herod's temple, the glory of God did not return. The glory of God had departed from Israel in that way, never to be seen again in their history. We do not see the glory of God again, nor is it made mention of as coming to His people until we have the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore John said in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The physical manifestation of the glory of God was present again in the physical manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelled among His people. And now He has been among them. And in this final scene, the glory of God, in a sense, is returning to the temple. And yet, sadly, it is once again a confrontation with the sinfulness of His people. Christ returns to the temple as the embodiment of the glory of God, but not to establish its glory, but rather to expose the same rebellious heart that caused God to reject it in the first place. And so here Jesus then comes to the temple and he confronts the perversion of temple worship. Look at the second part of verse 12. He enters the temple... And he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. An incredibly intense scene. Incredibly intense scene. Let me note two things here briefly about the context, however. In Mark 11, verses 12 through 14, he explicitly states that Jesus gave... His disciples, the parable of the fig tree before he entered into Jerusalem. And that that parable of the fig tree actually came on the second day. The day after they welcomed him into Jerusalem with the palm branches and the shouts of Hosanna. Mark says that on the next day when they had departed from Bethany. So in fact when Jesus entered into Jerusalem the first time amid the praises of his people. He then left went back to Bethany, and then is now coming back to Jerusalem on the second day, and that's immediately then where Matthew brings us in Matthew twenty-one twelve. 
Matthew is changing the order slightly here. He'll tell the parable of the fig tree next. We'll look at that next week. But Matthew here wants to emphasize the contrast between the Messiah that the people were bringing, ushering into the city of Jerusalem and his first act of condemnation of the worship that was going on there. A second contextual uh, importance is that this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. This is not the first time that Jesus has confronted the hypocrisy of worship in the temple of Jerusalem during his ministry. John chapter 2 verse 19 records another occasion at the beginning of his ministry where he did essentially the same things and he drove them out with cords and he ran them out of the temple because of the corruption of their worship there. Now, some want to see this as one event and John writing thematically, but that is not the best way to understand it. There are, in fact, two events, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. And it's important for us to grasp that because it highlights the significance of the event itself and of the spiritual condition of his people. At the very beginning of his ministry and at the very end of his ministry, he punctuates it with a rebuke on the false worship of the people of God. That they are corrupt at the very center of their worship to their God. And he needs to expose that. And that means then that in three years of the ministry of the Son of God among His people, three years of His words, three years of His works, three years of His life being evident among them, the spiritual condition of the nation, besides all the hoopla that surrounded Him, had essentially been left unchanged. Essentially left unchanged. It had done little to bring about true repentance from the people of God. And this is how deep the spiritual corruption of the and blindness of the nation ran. And it shows the degree of spiritual blindness that is possible in fallen and corrupt hearts. So therefore he comes now into this final week of his ministry and he enters Jerusalem cleansing the temple as we often call it. Confronting the emptiness and the hypocrisy and the perversion of their external worship of God. So he enters the temple for a second time and he confronts them. And he casts out those who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats, he says, of those who were selling doves. And I want you to notice that this is a targeted attack. It's specific. He doesn't go in first and confront the leadership. He goes in first and confronts those who are doing the buying and the selling and the exchanging of coinage. Let's just notice briefly these two groups. The first, those who were buying and selling. He mentions here in Matthew only one specific animal, doves, which were purchased by the poorest of the people and accepted as a sacrifice to God. In John chapter 2, other animals are mentioned, namely oxen and sheep, and we can assume the same are present here. Each of these animals are listed in the law as the proper, proper animals for sacrifice in Israelite worship. And now the fact is that the people traveled from long distances to come into the 
temple area in Jerusalem for the Passover meal. They would not have brought their own animals with them because it would have added extra difficulty to the journey. They could have been lost along the way. And so here these people have animals that they can purchase for sacrifice. They essentially set up shop to provide animals for those traveling from longer distances. The marketplace was not unknown in that general area, in that general temple area. As a matter of fact, one historian writes this, that there was a constant market in the temple in that place, which was called the shops. And there every day was sold wine, salt, oil, and other requisites to sacrifice, as also oxen and sheep in the spacious court of the Gentiles, where this is taking place. The second group he mentions are money changers. These were essentially like the currency exchange booths. If you've ever flown internationally, you know when you go to your country that you have to exchange American dollars for the currency of that particular country. And that's essentially what these money changers were. In Exodus 30, every Israelite over the age of 20, rich or poor, was required to pay a half shekel temple tax that was for the care and the maintenance of the temple area. In Exodus 30, it's for the tabernacle, but that was carried over also for the temple. Now, these money changers then would exchange foreign currency of those traveling from other lands. Many of the cities actually had their own unique kind of currency, and some who were traveling from further away, in order to pay this half-shekel tax, needed someone to exchange for them so that they could be faithful uh, to pay. And they would then, these money changers, also provide exact coinage for the purchase of animals while they were there during their stay in Jerusalem, which is probably what they are doing doing here. Now, as with the first group, the service that they are providing itself is probably not the main focus of his confrontation. Those, in fact, were very legitimate services that were needed in order for the worship and the Passover. Those were legitimate occupations. So what then is Jesus confronting? What is it? What is it about these things that makes him so angry? Well, there have been a variety of answers to this question. Some want to emphasize that he's attacking the act of buying and uh, selling animals and dealing with money at all. Others say he's confronting the fact that they were doing this in the temple area. Others that he is confronting the dishonest gain and exploitation of traveling pilgrims. I would suggest to you that there's no need to be so narrow. All of the above are true. When he confronted them in John chapter 2, he specifically confronts them for making the temple area, the house of God, a place of merchandise. Here in Matthew 21, he condemns them also for their greed and dishonesty. However, notice that he's not only confronting the sellers. It's not simply their dishonesty, but he's confronting the buyers and the sellers, which shows that there's something more going on here. And the idea mainly is this. That the temple of God was to be a place sanctified unto the worship of God. It was for His glory. It was to display His holiness among the nations. And yet they had used it for something profane and for profit. And this is what He's going to bring out in His rebuke. Look at verse 13. He says, And He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. A robber's den or a den of robbers. The first part of this quotation here is taken from Isaiah 56, verse 7. 
In Isaiah 56, the context is that he is anticipating the day uh, when all, both the, those who are foreigners and those who are outside of God's covenant promises, come together and they worship and acknowledge the God of Israel and they worship him and they receive the blessings of God's salvation, both Jew and Gentile alike. God's temple was to be a beacon of light to the nations. It was to be a testimony to God as the creator of the ends of the earth and the one in whom alone salvation could be found. And yet that was being distorted here. Mark eleven seventeen adds the fuller statement from Isaiah 56, 7, namely that it was a house of prayer for all of the nations. Now in reality, both statements are in Isaiah 56, 7. He mentions the house of prayer and then later the house of prayer for all of the nations. Mark chooses to bring that out. And this is significant. He's saying, this is my house. It is set aside for my glory, my worship, my honor. And it is a house of prayer. And by that, he does not simply mean that it is a gathering place where people pray, like we're going to go pray in this room. By saying it is a house of prayer, he is saying this is the place where his presence is uniquely represented among the people of God and on the earth. He's acknowledging then that he is Israel's covenant God and they should be hearkened back to the prayer of Solomon when they dedicated the first temple, Solomon's temple, back in 1 Kings when he said that, God, your eyes are on this place. Hear your people, your people whom you have called into fellowship with yourself. Hear them when they cry out to you. A house of prayer is to acknowledge then that He is their covenant God, the one true creator over all of the nations. And all of the nations here is a significant reminder. A significant reminder. This is all taking place, this entire scene, in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles was the nearest that any Gentile non-Jew could get to the sanctuary of God. It was the, they were not allowed beyond that point. Beyond that point, there was the court of women and then some other courts that separated the Holy of Holies and the temple area. But the court of the Gentiles was the most outside area of the temple, and it was the place where the Gentiles could come. And they could both offer prayer and receive prayer. And what Jesus is saying here is that instead of it being made a place for them to pray, it's being used for ordinary business, essentially then excluding them from the true worship of God. They're shown no concern. And Jesus' actions then in some way are anticipating the presence of the new covenant. That God is now, that Christ is here, opening up the way for the Gentiles. He's doing what his people failed to do, which was to be a light for the world. And he's confronting them. Let's note the second part of his quotation. He says, you're making it a den of robbers. Now this comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And go ahead and turn over to Jeremiah for just a brief moment. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, look at verse 2. The prophet here is standing in the, at a gate that leads into the temple. He says in verse 2, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And the word is, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. 
In other words, God is sending a message by his prophet to confront the people as they would come into the temple area to offer their worship. He's going to tell them in verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words. And what are these deceptive words? They're this. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And what does he mean by that? He's essentially repeating the false teaching of the prophets who were leading his people astray. He's demonstrating here the temple theology then of the false prophets. And they essentially taught this. They essentially taught that, look, you are God's covenant people. God has made a covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7. God has established Jerusalem as to be the place in which he will display his glory in all of the earth, Psalm 132. And they said, God will preserve his temple. He will not let any ultimate harm befall it. He would never judge his temple. And Jeremiah is standing in the gate saying, don't believe them. Don't believe them. It is a false prophecy. And this kind of thinking was ingrained in the minds of his people. And you'll remember that John the Baptist had to confront the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 3. He says, Don't, God can raise up stones to Abraham if he wants to. Don't think that your being children of Abraham will protect you from the wrath of God. And that's essentially what Jeremiah is also confronting to his people uh, at that time. And then he says in verse uh, 11... He says in verse 11, look back at verse 5, he calls them to repentance. He says, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor and so on, you will be accepted, but God will not tolerate iniquity in his holy house. And then he says in verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, in other words, my, for my glory, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. In other words, you have perverted the iniquity and the, you have perverted, excuse me, the worship of the temple of God by allowing iniquity to remain in it as you go through all of the motions of worship, though they are empty. They are not expressions of true worship to God. And here's the main point. They separated personal holiness and complete devotion to Yahweh from their practice of ritual worship. You get that? They had divorced the heart attitude of holiness from the worship of God. And Jesus is essentially laying the same indictment at the feet of those who are in the temple. And he's saying, you have perverted the worship of God. You've made it something unholy. You've made it a place where irreverence is not rejected and scorned, but is practiced in the open and even made a part of your worship. And here then, he is confronting the emptiness of their religion. They had diminished the glory of God. They had made worship something other than what God had designed it to be. They had made it something earthly rather than transcendent. And they essentially then were despising His holiness. And Jesus is exposing that. By exposing the wickedness of their worship, Jesus is standing in line with the prophets of the Old Testament like Jeremiah and the many others that God repeatedly sent to His people to confront their sin and to call them back to true worship of Him. What's distinct about Jesus, however, is that He enters, He's doing it by His own authority as the Son of the Father in flesh. 
He's not simply acting as a prophet, but he's acting as a messianic messenger of God. Now let me mention this just briefly. This is exactly what was anticipated in the book of Malachi. As God, throughout the book of Malachi, is confronting the hypocrisy of the worship of his people, he says this in verse 3. Don't just read verse 1 here, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and there he's referring to John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before me. I'm going to send one who's going to prepare the heart of the people. And then he mentions another. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is no longer the messenger he'll send. This is the Lord himself coming to his temple. And he is the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying through Malachi, you want the Lord to come because you think when the Lord comes, that's going to be for your establishment. That's going to be for your blessing. And yet, what he says in verse 2 is it's not going to be for your blessing because of the corruption of your worship. But you who endure, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In other words, he's coming not for your blessing, you who say you delight in it. He's coming for your cleansing. He's coming for your repentance. And this is exactly what we see as this prophecy comes true in the life of Jesus as he now enters into the temple area to dispose it and expose it of its corruption. This corruption. And let us learn from this that God is intimately and passionately concerned about the holiness of his people. We are redeemed for His glory, for the praise of the glory of His grace. His people were called His people, and He said to them, You are to be holy as I myself am holy. And He warned them that when you are not holy, judgment will come. And He punctuated this reality at significant points in the history of redemption. You'll remember at the establishment of the tabernacle in Leviticus 10, what did He do? Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed Aaron's son, Nadab, and Abihu. If you'll remember when David was bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, Uzzah, in an act of irreverence, went out to touch the ark. What did he do? He killed him. And this isn't an Old Testament God thing. What did he do in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive the Lord? He killed them right there. They were dead on the spot. God is punctuating throughout the history of redemption the truth that to come near to Him, He will be treated as holy. He'll be treated as holy. And the church then, in Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, is the temple of God. We are called that in the New Testament. And God will not tolerate sin among His church any more than He would Israel. And Jesus already gave instructions to his disciples that the church is to deal with unrepentant sin among us. In Matthew 18, he says in 1 Peter, we're to be a holy nation. And the fact is, if we as the church of God do not deal with sin, God will deal with the sin for us. And that's exactly what he's doing here in the nation of Israel. They rejected his holiness, and so God is rejecting them. But there's something even more going on here. Something even more. The fact is that after Jesus cleared out the temple, you know what they did? 
they picked up their tables and they set up business again. In John chapter 2, when Jesus did the same thing, what did they do? They endured it and then they started, uh, they, they kept doing the same practices. Jesus' point here isn't to do an act that's going to finally eliminate it. His act is much more than that. It's actually symbolic. He's doing this as a symbol. He's doing this as a picture to them of what is coming upon them. He's anticipating a much more devastating judgment looming on the near horizon in which God will decimate not only the temple area, but the Jerusalem itself. Something greater than the temple is before them. And it is a warning to them. It is a warning to them. Right now he turns over tables. Right now he turns over seats that people are sitting on. But as he'll tell his disciples in chapter 24, one day is coming where not one stone will be left upon another. And we mentioned this last week, and this is the coming destruction that God will bring through the instrumentality of future emperor and general Titus as he brought the Roman army against the land of Jerusalem and destroyed it in response to the Jewish rebellion that began in 66 AD. It ended in Jerusalem with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and it ended ultimately in 73 AD with the destruction of nearly a thousand Jews on the top of Masada as they all committed suicide except for a woman and children rather than be captured by the Romans. It was a horrible, horrible judgment that was to come. Josephus spends extended pages describing the suffering that went on by the people of God in this judgment of their own God. It was, they suffered the ravishes of famine. They suffered the ravishes or the gruesome crucifixion by the Roman soldiers, as we mentioned last week. Such that Josephus describes it, that space could not be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. They were so many. And yet look at verse 14. In the midst of such violence, as it were, in the midst of such a display of the unholiness of the temple and God's wrath against the sin of His people, there is a second rebuke to the temple leadership, except notice this one is not by violence, but it's a rebuke by the display of God's compassion for the outcast. And so he says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This is precious. These are those who would have largely been rejected by the Jewish leadership. And they in themselves were only allowed to go so far into the temple area. But here they are the objects of Jesus' compassion. The object of Jesus' compassion. Now, God continually rebuked His people for failing to love their God and demonstrating the failure to love Him by failing to love the people of God and to care for the weak and the outcast, the orphan and the widow, to care for the foreigner. And yet Jesus is here displaying that perfectly. Where they failed to demonstrate the heart of God, Jesus was the perfect manifestation of it. And it's always amazing to notice this in the Gospels. And don't read over this, how freely the weak and the needy and the downtrodden felt that they could enter into the presence of God. How compassionate he was. How open he was to them. And that's exactly the Jesus that we worship. The self-righteous respond in fear and hatred. And Jesus addresses them with the utmost scorn. But the sinner who knows themselves to be a sinner, here they are... Welcome into his presence. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
He's gentle towards sinners who seek his grace, but he is absolutely uncompromising in his rejection of the proud and the self-righteous, which is represented here by these leaders. Look at verse 15, and let's notice that God rejects all worship that does not glorify him in Christ. We'll look at this briefly. He says in verse 15, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. That could be translated angry. They became hostile of heart. And this is a striking contrast by intention of Matthew. Here we have that tranquil, peaceful scene of Jesus healing the blind and the lame and the weak. And right in the midst of that, we have these leaders coming to him with a statement of scorn, with a statement of rejection. And it's significant that it is the chief priest and the scribes. They are the two primary or two of the primary participants in the Sanhedrin, the ruling legislative body of Jerusalem. And they are two key adversaries who are going to play a significant role in his crucifixion at the end of the week. You'll remember that Jesus has already identified these in chapter 16 when he said that he is going to suffer, go into Jerusalem. That's where he is now. He's going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priest, and the scribes and be killed. He knows that. He knows that. As they come to him, he knows what that means. Matthew says that their anger stems, interestingly, directly from the fact that they were observing him heal in the temple area and that then they heard the cries of the children. That's what made them angry. That's what made them indignant. Now, in fact, the messianic expectations were very high. And while there were a variety of opinions floating around, the fact that he was considered to be a deliverer, he was considered to be a Messiah who was going to establish his people, that was the air that most of them were breathing. And the leaders were absolutely sick of it. And they were at a breaking point from both their anger and their fears, Mark 11 mentions. And so they lash out at him. And they say in verse 16, Do you hear what these children are saying? Now I want you to notice this. That this would be a good time then for Jesus to tone it down. Kind of soften out everything that's going on. Kind of some, somehow try to lessen the tension and ease some of the tension that's mounting against him by the leaders. But let me tell you, that is the last thing that Jesus is interested in doing. We've already mentioned he knows God's will. He knows that, he has, that his death is coming and he is completely submitted to that plan. As he said in John 12, for this purpose is I came. And so he ratchets up the tension and he confronts their hostilities dead on and he says, yes, have you never read that from the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And this is an absolutely striking statement. And in fact, it's more difficult, it's difficult to think of a more inflammatory statement that could have come from the mouth of Jesus towards these he is accused of. It's designed in one quote to bear witness both to himself and to expose their spiritual blindness. He's quoting from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a celebration of the majestic glory of God revealed in the creation of the universe and in the creation of man who is then to reflect his glory on the earth. And there in Psalm 8, it is 
the psalmist saying that God has ordained that he should receive praise from even the weakest of his creation, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. And Jesus is essentially saying this to these leaders. Look, if you remain silent as you are, God is going to bring praise to himself through even such as little children. Probably hearkening back even to what he taught his disciples earlier, that you must have faith like a child to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here he's saying it is these little children who have more insight than you do. And he's affirming his glory because the praise that Jesus is confirming for himself is in fact praise in Psalm 8 that is given directly to God. And Jesus is saying, yes, it's rightly applied to me. And in doing that, he's rebuking these blind leaders. These are the ones who said, we see. These are the ones who consider themselves the teachers of the foolish and the ignorant. These were the leaders of the people of God. And he's essentially saying, look, you are blind. You have less sight than the blind man who welcomed me on the road. You are ignorant and you have less insight than these mere children. You supposed leaders of Israel. And the fact is this. They simply refuse to see it. They simply will not humble themselves before God. And that really is the issue. That really is the issue. They would would rather hide behind their religious mask and their false sense of righteousness and the secret enjoyment that they had of the praise of men, which he's going to confront later, rather than submit to their own God. And so they reject God, and He rejects them. And this is the message, not only to them, but this is a message and a warning to us as the church. Listen to these words of the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 3. Just listen, I'll read. In Revelation three fourteen. The angel of the church and Laodicea, to the angel of the church and Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will speak you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And he who overcomes, I will grant him to, to him to sit down with me on my throne. And I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's what Jesus is here saying, look, you think that you're safe? You think that you can offer to God something less than true worship and He will accept you by the mere performance of religious duty? It isn't the case. God rejects your worship and He tells us to the church that we must be warned never to think that God will accept anything less from us as a demonstration of the reality of redemption and salvation. And so with the sting of the rebuke in the air of the ears of the Pharisees and the shock 
of the rebuke, his rebuke to the temple practices and worship, and to the shock of the praise he's receiving from children, Matthew ends this account with these ominous words in verse 17. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. He left them. He left them. And he goes to Bethany, and it's a place where he can get away from the fervor of the city and alone with his disciples. He's no doubt teaching them and preparing them for everything that's coming in the weeks ahead. Let us now prepare our hearts to make sure that we are coming to him in a holy frame of mind. We are coming to him as his people who offer him the sincere worship and obedience of our hearts. Father, we do thank you for the reality that we have grace to celebrate, that we have you, our Lord Jesus, who has come, who has accomplished the work of redemption, and who allows us as sinners to come into your presence, having received with grace and forgiveness of sin, having received the promise of the gospel, new life, entrance into the kingdom, and the hope of heaven. Help us, Spirit of God, again, to celebrate that this morning with true and sincere hearts for your honor and for your glory. And we do pray that you would use it in the hearts of any here who may not know you. Will you cause them to examine the true state of their inner man, their thoughts and their desires and their affections, and to see that they don't match up with you and you might bring them to repentance even this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.